John 3, 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Lord, we thank you for this eternal life that you've given to us. We look to you and we believe, Lord, that the law has been fulfilled for us in you and that we don't have the need to jot down every single law and every single thing that we could possibly do to try to earn your righteousness because we can't. Even a guy like Nicodemus here, Lord, who had the law all in front of him and was trying his his darndest to do it right, Lord, still couldn't do it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have ears to hear and an understanding mind so that as we read these truths and study your word, that it would be clear to us and that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of you, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, Nicodemus here, we're right in the middle of this discourse that appears here in John chapter 3. It is arguably the most famous discourse, maybe, between Jesus and another person in the New Testament, typically because of verse 16, which I don't think we're going to get to tonight, but we probably will in two weeks. Um. But Nicodemus here, he's a Pharisee. It means he's a man of the law. He's a man who loves the Lord as far as the Lord had been revealed to them at that point. Um, That Jesus was the second person of the Trinity was something relatively new and was something that We need to have the Gospels as we have that revelation given to us and then um, demonstrated in the book of Acts and expounded on throughout the epistles and then finally given final revelation in that book of Revelation. And so Nicodemus doesn't really completely realize who he's talking to. He certainly tries, right? I mean, he certainly comes, it seems like, with the best of intentions at least as far as we can read them. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But oftentimes the best intentions are woefully wrong. 
if you read between the lines here and you understand what Nicodemus is doing, then one of the things that we need to wrestle with is the way Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and assumes he can come to Jesus. And what do I mean? Well, he assumes that he can come to Jesus in the role of judge. He's assuming that he can come to Jesus in the role of one who has authority and is able to discern the truth about what Jesus is saying. And so he's coming to Jesus and he's putting Jesus, as it were, in the box where he would have to sit and give eyewitness or give testimony as if Nicodemus was the judge hearing a case in this matter. When in actuality the tables are completely turned and God is the one who's the judge. Jesus is the one who's judge. He doesn't have to give an account for anything that he does. He owes Nicodemus no testimony. But yet here Nicodemus is functioning in the role. Listen to what he says. We know you are a teacher for we see this evidence. You see? He's saying, I can discern because of my Wisdom, my studies, my intellect, which is all packed into him being a Pharisee. And I'm not necessarily just completely faulting him or putting on blast for that. He couldn't have known much better. He was a Pharisee. He was a man steeped in the law. He was a man steeped in the Old Testament very, very, very well. In fact, so well, when we begin our text for tonight, Jesus rebukes him for not understanding these things already. He proposes to be the one who can come and discern the truth or the error of the things Jesus is saying. And because of that, he can weigh the evidence that Jesus gives and therefore make a testimony about him or make a proclamation. You have come from God. As if Jesus needed him to say that in order for it to be valid or for it to be true. Well, this is one of the things that as we look through the rest of this, what Jesus does is he meticulously breaks down that position of authority that Nicodemus thinks he has. He breaks down Nicodemus's presuppositions. He breaks down Nicodemus's presumption of authority. He breaks down Nicodemus's coming with a self-understanding that he is the one who needs to make a discernment about the right or wrong, the truth or error of the claims and the words and the works of Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus doesn't answer that at all. Doesn't even acknowledge it. Just immediately from that point, moves into the difficult truths that Nicodemus needed to hear. We know it's the difficult truths that he needed to hear because of Nicodemus's response. How could someone be born again? How does this work? How does this happen? How can someone be born of the Spirit? How can these things be? And of course, Jesus responds in verse 8 with, it's the way of the Spirit like the wind. It blows where it wants to. It goes where it wants to. You can see its effect, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. God is the one who is the authority. God is the one who determines 
when and how and where he will save and the means by which he will do it, which is the Holy Spirit. But here you have in this text, you have these two members of the Trinity, Jesus talking to Nicodemus and Jesus giving testimony about the Holy Spirit in his work of regenerating people or to use Jesus's language here from the text, causing them to be born again. And that brings us to verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Now, you've got to understand, what we don't want to do is we don't want to read our 2,000 years of study of the New Testament and all of the wonderful tools and helps that we have as 21st century Christians back into the life of Nicodemus and go, dude was stupid. (laughs) How could he have not known all of these things? When, let's be honest, if we were there in that day and in that age, if we were truly God-fearers or people who were wanting to follow God, we would be following the ways of the Pharisees. We would be following the ways that the word gives to us so that we could follow God. And he was legitimately what we can, I think, honestly say at this particular point was the best he could do, he was doing. Now, he was a Pharisee, but he was one who was certainly, at least evidence indicates to me here, wanting to follow God. He was wanting to do right. He's coming to Jesus because he sees something in Jesus. He hears something in Jesus that he doesn't see and he doesn't hear in the rest of the religiosity that's going on around him in that day and age. He probably saw a lot of the hypocrisy that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 23, right? He probably sees the hypocrisy of some of the scribes and the rabbis standing on the street corner so that their prayers can be heard by others. He's seen the hypocrisy of people tooting their own horns as they go to point-plunk their coin down into the coffer to give to the temple. You know, check me out as I give kind of thing. He's seen people, you know, be scrupulous in their tithing. And he probably has smelt the repugnant whiff of self-righteousness on many of his colleagues there in the Pharisee realm or the Pharisee um, group. These people were a diverse group of people, but they had this one thing in common that they started out with the good intentions of seeking God's word, doing what God's word said with the hopes that they would see the Messiah come in as they followed God's word. Now, many of them strayed from it, and we see that in our day and age, right? I mean, we can look back and we can see, you know, periods of time where the church was much more um, centralized in terms of its thinking and believing, and you have an event like the the Revelation, the Reformation break out, and when the Reformation happens, suddenly you have these new groups coming about and people are genuinely going back to the Bible and genuinely seeking what it says and they're digging in and over the course of several generations, they become you know, more and more sophisticated in their thinking and theology, but then there becomes a drift. 
And we see many of the mainline denominations that originally had wonderful beginnings there in the days of the Reformation have now gone so far astray, they don't even resemble Christianity. They look all manner of other false religious systems. And so we look at the Pharisees and we know that, you know, in his day and age, there were many who had strayed far from the path, just like many of our own denominations have in our day and age. But there's still always a remnant, isn't there? That was the lament of Elijah as he ran away from Mount Carmel after that great victory, but then Ahab and Jezebel sought his life and he ran away and said, I, a Lord, am alone that's left. And the Lord had to rebuke him and say, no, I have 3,000 men who haven't bowed their knee to the false god Baal and he will always have his remnant. And so we look at Nicodemus and it's easy to paint him with a broad pharisaical brush and say, oh, well, he was completely this or completely that. And we want to be real careful that we don't do that with this guy. We see certainly what he's doing is he's coming with these false set of presuppositions that he had been taught. He is coming as the spiritual authority, which Jesus quickly knocks out from underneath him. Thankfully, praise God. God will always do that. And we love God for that because he's done it for each and every one of us if we're Christians. He does it for Nicodemus here as well. But this is really where we pick up the story is Nicodemus kind of having been knocked out, have his feet knocked out from underneath him and trying to kind of get a grasp, spiritually speaking, on these things Jesus is saying. How can this be? I have always been taught A and you're telling me B. I have always believed, we have always believed obedience is the way to righteousness with God. And you're saying, no, a person needs to be completely born anew as if you are an utterly new creature in order to be right with God. And if we can't do that, be in the fleshly birth, we need to be born again. How does that happen? How can that be? How can I be born again? And Jesus rebukes him. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And the reason isn't he was just giving him a, a jab, right? He wasn't just you know, poking him with a stick going, who's the dummy now, Nicodemus, you know? I mean, Jesus had a good sense of humor, but this isn't where he was exhibiting it. What he's doing is he is, I believe, what he does with lots of people, lots of times, even Christians, is he's grabbing him by his shirt collar and kind of shaking him up a little bit to get his attention, to help him to realize that he thinks more highly of himself than he ought to. As good as Nicodemus was, and I don't think anybody's going to say, you know, this guy's some shyster or some, you know, false character. He was doing the best he could, I think, at the time. And here the Lord is using even this guy being drawn to himself. He's using this event to shake him up and show him he is not what he thought he was. And that he, in fact, needs to be born again as well. Sometimes it's the people that are, have the highest estimation of themselves that need to be knocked the lowest. Right? There's a reason why people say, I came to the Lord when I was at my lowest point. It's because, well, there's nowhere else really to go at that particular point. 
But people who are way up there, they have a long way to go. And typically it's down. And so Nicodemus is being brought low, intellectually speaking, even emotionally. I think he's so emotionally invested in this that he's really shaken up about this. And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now remember, I said it already, we have the benefit of the New Testament and we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history that we can look back on on these things. But he had the Old Testament and yet Jesus still holds him accountable. That means that the revelation that we find in the pages of the Old Testament, that big fat section of scripture that is a little bit more dusty in people's Bibles than the New Testament, has enough light in it that it should point us to Jesus Christ and the truths that he's teaching here. Jesus assumed that it should have been true for Nicodemus. That's certainly the case. And, you know, when Jesus does something like expounds the Old Testament, all of a sudden there's light given there. Remember those two fellows on the road to Emmaus there at the end of Luke in 24? It says they were walking on their way and they were discussing the things about the resurrection because they didn't understand it. And then Jesus came strolling up, apparently not looking like Jesus. And as he came strolling up, they started talking with one another about the resurrection. And then Jesus began from Moses all the way through the Old Testament to teach them about the things that they should have understood. And their commentary at the end of that experience was, oh man, our heart burned within us when he spoke about the Old Testament. And the Old Testament really should do that. And it should be something for us that is enlivening. And it's a joyful book to go back and read, not some laborsome, antiquated history book. But we read in there the very words of life and vibrancy that point us forward to Christ. And so now what we see when we read the Old Testament is Jesus on every page. Every single page. He gives here two, in my mind, specific Old Testament texts and examples that he states Nicodemus should have understood by way of him being the fulfillment of all things and the need for a new birth. But before I get to those two texts, he says in verse 11, Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know. Now, who's we? Some people said, well, it's him and his disciples. Well, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? He's, he's turned the water into wine. And while we've been in the book of John for months now, the, the you know, actions of the book of John have not been going on for months. He turned the water into wine, then he went down to celebrate the Passover, and in doing that, he ran the money changers out of the temple, and this is the night after that. That's as far as we are at this point. I think probably who he's speaking of is he's speaking of John the Baptist and himself here, because John the Baptist had for um, a few years at this particular point been speaking about all kinds of matters, and some of them have been earthly matters, right? Remember, the people came out to Jesus, and the soldiers said, pardon me, came out to John and said to John, hey, what should we do? And he said, well, don't treat people poorly. If, if, you know, you can do what you're supposed to do, but don't go more than that, right? So they were allowed to 
compel somebody to walk a mile and carry their backpack. And he was telling the soldiers, don't compel them to do more than that. You know? Well, tax collectors, what should we do? Well, don't take more than you're supposed to take. Do your job with decency and integrity. So there were earthly matters that John the Baptist certainly did speak of, and there probably were earthly matters even Jesus had spoken of at this particular point. So we shouldn't be puzzled or uh, queried about when he says this here, that when we speak of earthly matters, but he says, well, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. That's key for me in this whole passage. You don't receive our testimony. He says, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. And with that, you don't receive our testimony. To me, this speaks that the most astute student of scripture cannot understand these spiritual truths apart from the spirit of God doing his work. You see, that's, that's what I think he's getting at here with Nicodemus. He is brilliant, a theological mind, probably a man who was very concerned about his community and the whole nation of Israel. He seemed to have love for his brethren being a motivating factor in the things that he does. At least he, we see that there at the end of Jesus' life when he helps bury Jesus. But as great a man as Nicodemus was, a teacher of Israel, he still didn't receive the testimony because he had not been born again yet. So verse 12 says, If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And the implication is you can't do it. You can't do it. And I want to say as clear as I possibly can, without any kind of unequivocal terms, people can't believe the truth about the gospel unless God reveals it to them. They cannot do it. On our own, we cannot believe the truth. We cannot receive the testimony. We can't accept these things. On our own, we say, like Nicodemus, how can these things be? We cannot do it unless we have been born again, unless we have been born of the Spirit, unless something supernatural happens to us and changes within us and enables us to believe. We do not have the ability because of sin, because of the fall, because of unrighteousness, because a veil is over eyes. Whatever phraseology we want to use, and all of those are biblical terminology, we cannot do it. But what are the two texts? We have in verse 13 and verse 14 here. Now, these two texts on the surface might seem kind of obscure, but I don't think they would have been for Nicodemus in his day and his age. Um, These passages would have been ones that were understood rightly and clearly in terms of them being pointing forward to something greater than the events in and of themselves. Specifically, the first one. No one has ascended into heaven 
except he who descended from heaven. Now, many people at this particular point had ascended into heaven, right? Enoch, there in the book of Genesis, he walked with God and he was not. He was apparently, uh, what's the word, translated right up into heaven. Elijah, right? We talked about him a minute ago. Well, he hopped in that fiery chariot and up he went, right? Now, Moses, we don't know what happened with him. There's that passage about Satan and, you know, the angels contending over his body. But he, he apparently went up to heaven. He's there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? With Elijah and representing the law and the prophets up there. So he's up there in heaven. And at this particular point in time, a lot of, um, well, what should we say? Historical fiction had arisen about all of these characters and their being in heaven. And many of them have these exploits or tall tales or things that they did in heaven. And there's some of these extra biblical writings that we have about Enoch and Elijah and Moses and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And what, you know, what have they done beyond um, the, and now that they have been in some way, shape or form in heaven. But they have all ascended into heaven, but none of them have come back down. None of them. Jesus is saying there's only one person who is in heaven and who has descended from heaven. And he tells us here who that is, the son of man. Now that's not ambiguous language for you who are steeped in the Old Testament and know the Old Testament. And you probably know exactly where to go here. It's Daniel chapter 7. Look at it with me real quick. Daniel chapter 7, it's right after Ezekiel. So you got the big books in the prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And if you find those big books, you start turning to your right, you're going to come to Daniel. It's right after Ezekiel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has one of his famous visions. And this one takes place in heaven. It says, let's begin in verse 9. And I looked and thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning with fire. A stream of fire issued and came from before him and thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open and I looked and then because of the sound was so great words that the horn was speaking, I looked and the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire as the rest of the beasts were. And their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, and I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. 
Now, as you read that, if you think in your mind, boy, this sounds like Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Yes, it does. It sounds exactly like Revelation 4 and 5 in parts. It's almost word for word the same in parts. And the reason is, is because Daniel here was seeing a vision, and in this vision he saw two of the members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. And the Father and the Son were cohabiting heaven, and the dominion of all things was handed over to Jesus, just like we see declared for us or illustrated for us there in the book of Revelation. And this would have been just like we have Revelation 4 and 5 in our minds in that apocalyptic book. This would have been an apocalyptic, apocalyptic similarity in the minds of somebody like Nicodemus. This isn't some backwoods corner Obadiah kind of passage in the Old Testament. This is something that would have been clear and would have been understood. Daniel was one of the major prophets for a reason. And so this passage here and Jesus speaking about him being the one who is in heaven and descended from heaven being the son of man would have been crystal clear for Nicodemus in understanding this passage. In the book of Proverbs, not a book that's typically looked to for prophecy, granted, but it has these words in the beginning of um, Proverbs chapter 30. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I learned of, have I not learned wisdom, nor have I learned of the knowledge of the Holy One? Who has ascended to heaven and who has come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Who is his name and who is his son's name? Well, I believe in Daniel here. We have him and his son revealed to us. And I believe that Jesus is pointing back to this particular passage when he uses this phraseology of the son of man here and referring himself to be the ancient of days. If you want to use this passage, it's wonderful to use. There are many of the cults and the isms out there, though, that have jumped around and have twisted themselves into pretzels trying to explain away this particular text. But the truth of the matter is, this is clearly, I believe, I don't know how you can get around it, speaking of Jesus Christ being King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of Man who had ruled together with the Ancient of Days in heaven. Then the second text is in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you might not be as familiar with this passage. It takes place in Numbers 21, so you want to turn back to Numbers 21, because I want to read this particular text. As you're turning there, this is kind of the turning point, as it were, in some ways of the wilderness excursion. They had left Egypt, they had sent their spies into the promised land, they had rebelled against 
God's word and a God's leading them into the promised land. So God has cursed them to wander in the wilderness until that generation had fallen dead there in the wilderness. But Aaron has just died. And so there is a element of the hopes and the visions for the future that had died along with Aaron. You can imagine, he was the very first high priest. He was one of the ones who was not only the leadership of Israel, but God had anointed him to be the voice. Because remember, Moses didn't speak well. And we have a lot of writings of Moses, so we assume that he was just this powerful, probably, you know, public figure. But Aaron was the one who spoke for him. And so think about it. Aaron is the one who's the high priest. He's also the spokesman for Moses. And here he finally dies. And now there's some fear that's beginning to settle throughout the camp. People are beginning to wonder, boy, are we ever going to get into the promised land? And, and they're starting to become this unease, right, that's taking place. And so they're going in to go battle the Canaanites. And they pray, Lord, if you will give us victory over these people, then we will devote all of these cities to destruction. Now, God had already told them, when you do this, destroy all the cities. But here they're saying, we're going to really do it this time if you give them into our hands. And probably there's some, you know, you need some motivation, right? I get up in the morning to work out some mornings. And some mornings I got to tell myself, you just have to roll out of bed, dude. And you just got to do it. This is kind of what I imagine that being like. It's a silly illustration, but it's just them saying, we're going to do what you said. And so God gives them over just like he promised he would. And they defeat them. And even though they've defeated them, there's still this unsettled ease that has infected the camp. And that's where we pick up the story here in verse 4 of chapter 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. People began to speak against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water. Ah, we loathe this worthless food, the manna they're speaking about there in verse 5. So, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Let me just think about that for a second. It's God's chosen people. He's brought them out of the land of Egypt. He has providentially given them everything they need all along the way, some ways miraculously, some ways just naturally, but they have everything that they need. And here yet they still grumble and they complain against the Lord. And the Lord against these very own people of his who he has brought out of the land sends these snakes to come and at least from our perspective, indiscriminately bite people. And some of the people who were bitten perished. That's, that's a, a hard, difficult trial to think about. We're in the middle of this thing that we're going through. We have to do church remotely because of this thing. And people have asked questions. Is this God's judgment upon us? Well, maybe. Maybe. 
Maybe not. It's very difficult to tell. But one of the things that certainly happens is when a people rebel against the Lord and begin to complain against the Lord and begin to act against the Lord, he will certainly bring judgment against them. And we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. And that judgment might come in the form of an illness. It might come in the form of people dying and it might come in other ways and shapes and forms as well we don't know but it is for us to respond the way the people of israel did and that's in repentance in repentance the people in verse 7 came to moses and said we have sinned we have spoken against the lord and against you pray to the lord that he might take these serpents from us so they repent But yet, if you notice, in their repentance is a bit of a command. Pray to the Lord that he would take the serpents away. It's not how God works. God does not listen to the voice of men and the voice of people. And although they were certainly repentant, he did not heed their voice in taking the serpents away. Instead, there is another means by which he provided salvation. By point of application, let me ask you this. Beloved, how many times have you asked the Lord, take this sin from me? Take this thing from me, and it doesn't go away. How quickly do you get discouraged when it just doesn't go away like that? It's easy to do. It's very easy to do. God is not under any obligation to take things away like that. Instead, he uses these as a means by which to increase and strengthen your faith. So if it is not taken away from you, it simply means that you patiently, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, can and ought to endure it and keep on walking with him, repenting when you sin and being, great, being thankful for the grace that he has given you in the midst of it. Because, look what it says, Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole and everyone who is bitten. The assumption is people are still going to be bitten. Not only the assumption, the prophecy, they're still going to be bitten. But now when you look at this bronze serpent that is set up in the middle of the camp, you won't die when you look at it. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What an interesting story. It's so interesting that they keep this bronze serpent around. And in 2 Kings 18, you find they're still worshiping. Except they're not worshiping God. They're worshiping the pole with the snake on it at that particular point. Hezekiah has to tear it down and melt it down to get the people to quit worshiping this thing. It's not what God had intended this thing to become. But the story is interesting because Jesus here, we reading this, I don't think if we had Jesus's words would have equated this with him because there's a serpent on the pole. And the serpent is typically in the Bible a symbol for Satan himself. And it would, be, it would be odd if we didn't have Jesus' words to say, oh, well, this is Jesus. And you know there'd be pushback from people going, no, 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 Jesus is likened to a serpent. How dare you say such a thing, right? But here we have Jesus himself likening his own ministry to this bronze pole. And he says, as back in John chapter 3, 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, when that serpent was lifted up, there were two things that happened. One was, it was an illustration of the death that had come to the people, but it was also an exaltation of God and his saving work. And both of those things we see combined in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A commentary on our need for death, on our death that we deserve, and an exaltation in the glories of Jesus Christ being the one that has provided salvation for us, to us. Jesus says in John chapter 12, Lord, I will glorify you with this work that I do as he's going to the cross. And he's speaking about his going to the cross. He says in John chapter 17, as he's praying to the Father, Father, I want that glory that I had back with you because I'm completing the work that you sent me to do. So Jesus Christ, as he is hanging there on the cross, emblematically signifies the death we all deserve. And if we don't see that when we look to the cross, then we are trivializing the cross. We all deserve to die a horrible death like that. But even more than that, because it's just a physical death, we all deserve to suffer spiritually the way Christ suffered on the cross. He did not in any way, shape, or form obligate or be obligated to save us in that way. But he did because it glorifies him to provide salvation in such a way. And in providing salvation in such a way as Christ bears our wrath, he is substituted for our sin nature, the the punishment we deserve. He is exalted. He is lifted up. He is glorified because he is the one who does the redeeming work. So just like no one can come to the Father, no one can understand these things, no one can believe and receive the testimony unless they've been born again, no one can be saved unless Christ has paid the punishment that they deserve. You see, everything Jesus is talking about in terms of salvation here is all bound up in the glory of God Almighty. It all glorifies him. It all points back to him. It all focuses attention back to God. Never, 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 never upon the man except in the position of being inadequate, incapable, sinful, futile, whatever word you want to use. That's the glory of salvation that he has provided for us. It all glorifies God. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The belief in him can only come based upon the words Jesus has already said through the new birth, through the spiritual birth. If a person is just merely born of water or merely born of flesh, they can't do it. But in reading the text the way Jesus lays it out, those who've been born of the Spirit, those who have been born again, those are the ones who have this ability to believe and have this eternal life as they, like the Old Testament believers, looked to that bronze serpent and when they were still bitten, they lived. We look to the cross and we receive that eternal life even here on this earth while we still sin and fail. 
but we still have that eternal life because we look to him by faith and trust in him and trust in him alone for salvation. The Lord is so good and faithful. I read this and it just, it, my heart soars. And, I, and it makes me do a couple of things as I close. One, it makes me want to go back into the Old Testament and see what other little uh, goodies are hidden back there for us to find about uh, Jesus and his work on our behalf. And so it doesn't make me just uh, this New Testament believer that has uh, amputated the Old Testament and, and doesn't go there anymore. No, I want to go back there and look and read and see, like I said earlier, Jesus on every page. And number two is it makes me so grateful for the plan and eternal purpose of God in redemption. It's so clear as you start seeing these big God-glorifying pictures that have all the way been back in the Old Testament pointing us forward. We see this grand plan and purpose of salvation. It isn't just a cosmic band-aid Jesus was putting on the earth so that you know we could have some kind of healing, but it was always his intention to do this. And that's why Nicodemus could have been accountable, or pardon me, should have been accountable for this knowledge. And finally, it just makes me worship because I believe in him. That means he has done a spiritual work in me that I couldn't earn, I didn't deserve, and to be perfectly honest and frank, I'm damned if I don't have it. And I know it, but oh, I love God so much for it. Lord, we thank you for saving us from our sins and giving us this new spiritual life in you. Lord, you've taken us from darkness and given us new life. And as we look to the pages of the Old Testament even and we find these <clears throat> rich, rich passages that point to you, we love it. We, we, we see this big, wonderful plan and purpose that you've always had. How our salvation has always been a matter of you and resting in your hands and not us and in our own works and in our own doing. Lord, fill us with your spirit that we might rejoice and worship you in the midst of these truths and these things, all for your great glory, Lord. In your name, amen.